Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you've just recently started listening, thank you so much for choosing us and for putting us in your ears. Today, we are going to be talking about down there, your Mary, your foo-foo, or as some people call it, their fanny. But mostly, we'll be using the right words and we'll be talking about the clitoris. I think you can go back to any era and find the ways that the clitoris was dismissed or misunderstood or ignored. Um, but I like to go back to Hippocrates, the known as the father of Western medicine, um, so ancient Greek physician. And he never actually studied a living female person. Um, he just relied on what <laughs> midwives told him about women, but he still decided to name women's genitals. Um, and he named them a word in ancient Greek that I will not butcher for you. Um, that means the shame parts, essentially. That was journalist Rachel E. Gross, the author of Vagina Obscura, talking. And we'll be hearing a lot more about this much misunderstood and ignored lady part later on. First, though, Sinead O'Connor is still very much on all of our minds and her funeral took place this week with all those moving scenes on the seafront in Bray, all the reggae playing. She loved it as the uh, cortege went past her former home there ahead of the funeral, which was attended by many famous music celebrities and her family and friends, obviously, and people from the Muslim community. I wasn't able to get down there myself, but you might have seen our powerful front page of the Irish Times in yesterday's paper, which also featured a poem that was read out at the funeral by Sinead's brother, the wonderful writer Joseph O'Connor. And it's a poem he wrote about a childhood memory of Sinead in 2010. And I thought it might be nice to read it out here to continue our grieving of Sinead and our celebration of her extraordinary life and legacy. The poem is called Blackbird in Dunleary and it's by Sinead's brother, Joseph O'Connor. There's a blackbird in Dunleary when I'm walking with my sons through the laneways called the Metals by the train tracks and he sings among the dandelions and bottle tops and stones serenading purple ivy weary tree trunks and I have it in my head that I can recognise his song pick him out I mean distinct from all his flock mates 
Impossible, I know. Heard one blackbird, heard them all. But there are times he whistles up a recollection. There's a blackbird in Dunleary and I'm suddenly a kid asking where from here to Sandy Cove my youngest sister hid. I'm 14 this Easter, my job to mind her. Good Friday on the pier and I suddenly can't find her. The sky like a bruise by the lighthouse wall. We were playing hide and seek. Is she lost? Did she fall? There's a blackbird in Dunleary and the terrors like a wave breaking hard on a hull and the people's faces grave. As Yeats on a banknote, stern as the mansions of Kalini in the distance, as the pier's granite stanchions, and Hoth is a drowned child, slumped in Dublin Bay, and my heart is a drum, and the breakers gull grey. The baths, it starts raining, the people's park, and my tears and the turns and the dog's bitter bark. There's a blackbird in Dunleary and I pray to him then, for God isn't here, in a sobbed Amen. And she waves from the bandstand, her hair in damp strings, and the blackbird arises with a clatter of wings from the shrubs by the tea house where old ladies dream of sailors and Kingstown and Teddy's ice cream. And we don't say a word, but cling in the mizzle and the whistle of the bird getting lost in the drizzle. Mercy weaves her nest in the wildflowers and the leaves. There are stranger things in heaven than a blackbird believes. What an absolutely beautiful poem. Um, I just found it so moving and we wanted to read that as we continue to come to terms with the death of Sinead O'Connor. That was Blackbird in Dunleary by the amazing Joseph O'Connor, Sinead's big brother. Now, today's episode was inspired by an article I read in the New York Times a while ago by Rachel E. Gross. And it's funny that her name is Gross because some unenlightened people might think that what we're about to discuss is gross, but not you, our loyal women's podcast listeners. You know that talking about the clitoris and other things like that is important and empowering and actually, as you'll see, quite entertaining um, in parts. The New York Times article by Rachel E. Gross had a very eye-catching headline. It said, half the world has a clitoris, why don't doctors study it? And in this article, Rachel quoted another Rachel, Dr. Rachel Rubin, a urologist, who said that the reason doctors don't study the clitoris was simple. She said it was because the clitoris is bound up in female pleasure and orgasm. And until very recently, those themes were not high on medicine's priority list or considered indeed appropriate areas of medical pursuit. So the article got us extremely curious about the clitoris and we decided to have both Rachels on. Rachel E. Gross, the journalist and author of the book Vagina Obscura and the previously mentioned Dr. Rachel Rubin, sexual health specialist. And I have to say it was a fascinating chat and it goes into a lot of places this podcast has not previously explored, which is fantastic. Rachel E. Gross was speaking to us from Brooklyn and Dr. Rubin was in Washington. And I think you are really going to be 
be engrossed in this conversation, which goes into the mystical G-spot, the female orgasm, masturbation, and the words ancient Greeks used for female genitalia, which is very annoying and big sigh here, which translated as shame parts. I began by asking Dr. Rubin to describe the anatomy of the clitoris for us. It's really incredible um, how the clitoris and the penis are exactly the same thing, actually. Uh, we all start the same way. Uh, we have the same genitals, and then they kind of morph and kind of transform into their parts uh, that we have as adults. And so the penis, right, you have half of it outside the body, and half of it is actually inside the body. There are these two legs of the penis that go all the way down to your butt bones. And so if you're sitting on a bicycle seat, you are sitting on your penis, uh, same is the clitoris. So the clitoris has not half outside the body, but only a tiny sliver outside the body for most people, which is called the glands or the head, just like the head of a penis. Uh, that is the only part visible uh, for most people. And it's often covered by a hood uh, or a prepuce, as we call it as doctors. But there is a body of the clitoris or a shaft of the clitoris that kind of dives inward that you can feel uh, through the skin, but you can't see it ever, actually. And then it dives into two legs that go all the way down to the butt bones also. And those are made up of the same erection tissue, which is smooth muscle, that a penis is made of. So they actually work the same way. It's just that science has studied one, but not the other, but they're the exact same things and everything can go wrong. I always say that you can't, because women don't pee through or penetrate with their clitoris, science has completely ignored it, you know, for yeah. all of these millennia and, and Rachel Gross can tell you the history behind it. <laughs> there are also these bulbs that sort of live next to the legs of the clitoris in the same way, um, you know, sort of as the bottom of the penis is made up of spongy tissue of the urethra. That's not the erectile part of the penis, but is the spongy part that holds urine. Well, there are these bulbs that have spongy tissue that live, and all of this lives underneath the labia majora. And so a lot of it swells and gives pleasure and is a very sort of sexual part of the body and a really enjoyable part of the body, which is a little bit humorous because it's not the vagina, which is why most people don't get their maximal sexual pleasure from vaginal penetration. So it would be like a man saying, you know, gosh, I rub the inside of my thigh, but I can't orgasm. Well, it's close to your penis, but it's not your actual penis. And so we often do a lot of educating people on just the basics of what their clitoris looks like. Because I think some people might not even realize that the clitoris can become erect as well, the same way a penis can, but it can, can't it? Completely. And it absolutely does. And the problem is the same things that can affect penises like heart disease, blood pressure, hormone changes can also affect the clitoris. But because the erection is all inside the body, because the head of the clitoris, just like the head of the penis, is not the erection part. So if you have an erect penis, you can feel the head is still squishy, but the shaft is what's hard. And so the next time you get a clitoral arousal or you feel the engorgement, feel the shaft part, right? That's a part of the clitoris that you can actually feel, um, which is, again, we can get scientific about it, but that's the difference between the smooth muscle erection tissue versus the non-erect tissue uh, of the clitoris. I was also in my research found out that in 2009, a small team of French researchers carried out the first sonographic mapping of an erect clitoris. But the technology to do this had been available for years before. So going back to what you were saying, I wonder why um, the clitoris wasn't a, a source of fascination for scientists the way the penis has been. 
couldn't be to do with the fact that it just belongs to women, could it? I'll let Rachel Gross take that one. <laughs> Rachel. You know, that that might be part of the answer. Um, <laughs> I think you can go back to any era and find the ways that the clitoris was dismissed or misunderstood or ignored. Um, but I like to go back to Hippocrates, the known as the father of Western medicine, um, so ancient Greek physician. And he never actually studied a living female person. Um, he just relied on what <laughs> midwives told him about women, but he still decided to name women's genitals. Um, and he named them a word in ancient Greek that I will not butcher for you. Um, that means the shame parts, essentially. And this began a trend where male doctors often associated female genitals with shame, um, and they either didn't study them or they made these assumptions that really messed up our understanding of them. Um, so one of the biggest assumptions that came around during this time was that women were an inside out and inferior version of men, and therefore they had all the same parts, but they were internal. And, you know, with everything that Dr. Rubin was saying, there's some truth to that. But unfortunately, the way this was interpreted was that the uterus and vagina together made up like an internal penis, and the ovaries were internal testicles. And so if that, if those are all the parts you need, because those are the equivalent male parts, there's really no room for the clitoris. The clitoris is not important to reproduction and to the point of a woman in this scenario. So it's often cast off to the side. And even in the 1500s, when you had the birth of modern anatomy, um, anatomists were saying, I've never seen a clitoris in a healthy woman. That must just be something that, quote, hermaphrodites have, um, because listen, I've studied the human body and the uterus and vagina are the main things. Um, and so you'll actually see doctors during this period fighting over the existence of the clitoris and then finally arguing over who gets to name it. It's so interesting because, it, and is it, could it be to do with the fact that the clitoris is there for sexual joy, sexual pleasure? That's its purpose. So they didn't bother looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, that's absolutely a major part of what's going on. So What's interesting is later on in like the Victorian era, clearly doctors know what the clitoris is for and what it's doing, because as soon as we have gynecological surgery, we are removing the clitoris. So actually, um, unfortunately, if you've ever heard of John Harvey Kellogg, who's the father of Kellogg's cornflakes. Yeah. Yes, he was a pretty religious. <laughs> An interesting chap, as I recall. <laughs> right. This was like shocking to me. I can never look at cornflakes the same way. Um, but he was very religious and he was very, very anti-masturbation. Um, so it was part of this masturbation panic time. And he really recommended that you put carbolic acid on the clitoris or penis and he recommended this surgery to amputate the clitoris. Um, and that was something that spread across America and England. Um, so it just like the first thing you do when you realize that the clitoris is capable of great pleasure and that women can find pleasure on their own without penetration is suggest cutting it off. I think that says quite a lot. Yeah. Tell me about the role Freud played in confusing the situation for everyone as well. He had something to say about clitoral orgasms, didn't he? Of course he did. <laughs> because of course. <laughs> um, yeah, I do rail on Freud a lot. Um, but basically, this this guy was a psychoanalyst and he really had no business talking about female anatomy, yet he also came up with this theory that 
the vagina was kind of the mature organ of womanhood and the clitoris was the infantile organ. And it represented this desire to like hang on to your masculinity because all humans are inherently bisexual in his grand scheme of things. And so at some point in order to follow on the path to healthy womanhood, a girl has to give up her clitoral pleasure and transfer her orgasm to her vagina. Um, all of which is biologically impossible, I might add, but it really took hold in like not only the popular imagination, but it took hold in medicine. I was shocked to see doctors repeating this idea in the 1900s um, that women were infantile or that they had psychological difficulties because they were only having an orgasm from their clitoris. And as Dr. Rubin said, like that is where you have an orgasm. That is the center of all orgasms. So Freud really messed it up for mm, generations of women and people with clitorises. Uh, thanks, Freud. Um, you, you mentioned your book, Vagina Obscura, and you do outline the history and all the knowledge about the clitoris that you have. And you talk a lot about the shame and ignorance as well that women still today um, feel about their vaginas. I remember, I think in like, I don't know, was it second wave feminism, there was a whole trend of people getting um, mirrors out and looking at their vaginas and this was a big, huge thing. But there's still all these uh, pseudonyms for the vagina. My friend calls hers uh, her Mary, funnily enough. And I think you're, you're of a colleague who calls it their front butt. Is that right? She no longer does, to be clear. <laughs> but yeah, that was, <laughs> she, she loves to say vagina now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's so many pseudonyms. I kind of call them the Voldemort words. It's like you'll use any word to not say the thing itself. So ones that, that we kind of take for granted, like down there, nether regions, lady parts. Um, and then, yeah, there's those nicknames. Like actually in the UK, I always hear Minnie and Fufu <laughs> and of course Fanny. Um, but it, weird, like little girl names that are very infantile. Um, and I just think there's this, Elision, Elijah, that's going on where if you can't say the name, like how can you actually talk about this, frankly? Even just using those nicknames suggests that there's something unsayable about mm. our genitals. Um, so I think it's, it's not helpful and that ideally we would be teaching young people the anatomical names, um, both so they know how to refer to their own genitals and so they don't get the impression that this is some part of the body that is somehow dirty or wrong or shameful. Mm. Um, Dr. Rubin, you must come across women who feel that sense of shame or ignorance about their own bodies because you work as a urologist. So you like to take patients on a tour of their vulva. Is that right? I love it. I call it, I'm going to give you a tour of your own body. And, you know, I, I find it horrifying that uh, we got uh, popularity in doing that because Rachel Gross wrote an article in the New York Times that was a full page in the science section, the science section. <laughs> and it was like a scientific discovery that I give women a mirror and I show them their own body parts. This is your labia majora. This is your labia minora. This is your clitoris. This is your vulvar vestibule, which is a word nobody's ever heard of. Never heard which of is it why, Which is why most people have pain with intercourse. This is your pelvic floor, right? These are things. And I believe, I, this is a crazy concept because I know, right, science in, in, in uh, today's age, that when you give women information about their body and educate them on the, the anatomy 
anatomy, the physiology, and what we call pathophysiology, when things go wrong, they can understand it and make decisions with their body about what they do with it, whether they use hormone therapy, whether they get surgical procedures, whether they know another surgical procedure may cause risk, just like Rachel Gross's article said that people getting hip surgery can have changes to their orgasm. I believe education empowers people, right? I see all genders. I believe education empowers people to make really good decisions uh, and what we call shared decision-making with their body. So yes, I love giving people a mirror. And I often, I often preface the conversation with them to say, hey, you know, your elbow doesn't give you positive or negative vibes. Like your elbow, you're pretty neutral about. It's a body part like anything else. The vulva, the genitals, the clitoris, this brings you pleasure, oftentimes your partner pleasure. For goodness sakes, it brings human life into the world. And yet we have negative feelings, disgust, shame, guilt. I just pray for neutral people. Like I would love joy and pleasure, but come on, can it be like your elbow? And so I, th- I say things like, look at your eyebrows. Like, look, my eyebrows are so weird. Why are there hairs on top of my face? Like it's super weird, but we're used to it because we see it all the time. So genital hair or labial, um, labia minora or those inner wings, right? They can be different shapes, different sizes. And because people just are so uncomfortable, right? They feel shame. They feel guilt. And it is one of the most, the saddest things that we have in today's age. Well, Rachel mentioned earlier that word, she didn't say it, but the word you're referring to, Rachel, I think was pudendum, the Latin word, which translates into parts for which you should be ashamed. So we were literally, that, that was passed down over generations for thousands of years. I was actually talking about the Greek word, which is something like oh. toadoan. Same thing, though. It means shame parts. Okay. And basically, I saw that this continued throughout the ages. So, like, um, in the 1500s, a uh, French anatomist dissected a clitoris, and he named it the, like, membre en toe, like, the shame member. And then <laughs> we, yes, and then also that Latin term pudendum has been the longest lasting, and that was in gynecology textbooks going up to, you know, a couple years ago. Right. It was still being used. And I presume still somewhere being yeah. used as well, because I've heard of it. And it's also a bit of an insult, isn't it, that word? Or it's used as a as a sort of nasty word, I think. Interesting. Men have pudendal nerves too, right? The, the male pudendal nerve goes to the penis, the perineum and the rectum, just like the female pudendal nerve goes to the clitoris, the vulva and the rectum as well. So it's it's a it's a uh, the genitals are to be disgusted by all uh, and shamed, <laughs> shamed by all. Well, it was an interesting thing because, um, right, like Rachel was saying, pudendum used to mean the male and female genitals. Um, so at least the shame was spread around equally. But at some point, the male one went away. And so in textbooks, you only see pudendum being a synonym for the vulva. Um, so right. I, I thought that was kind of interesting, like what gender Very. is shame sticking to? Very interesting. Dr. Rubin, um, you're a, what's called, or I think Rachel Gross has named you a clitorologist. We're calling you an international clitorologist. We think it's a great word. But when you were doing your medical training, was there much about the clitoris in your textbooks? Not a lick of it. None of it. In <laughs> Not fact, a lick there, of it. I like it. <laughs> there is, I, pun is always intended, um, The nothing. So there is certainly 
Uh, if you look at our anatomical textbooks, you can see a sliver of the glands, right? What you see, um, and it will it will label that. But the internal clitoris, the entire, you know, if you look at an anatomical textbooks, the woman anatomy is always to the side. It's here's the male anatomy and sort of here's the female anatomy. And then we got pages on reproduction and uteruses and childbirth and things like that. Um, but very, uh, there's nothing on the clitoris, nor do I remember a single lecture or a single uh, uh, thing on female sexual health or really male sexual health, to be honest, in medical school. It's just there's so much to learn and sex will never be a priority. You know, I joke, you know, as far as it goes, as you learn in med school to ask people, you know, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do drugs? Do you have sex? Men, women, or both? As though sex is a vice. You should be shamed. Uh, it's as bad as smoking. Sex is as bad as smoking. And uh, you could get an STD or something like that. Like, and, and no one even teaches you how to talk to patients about normal sexual health or normal ways to normalize and educate people. What should masturbation look like? What should orgasm feel like? What should consent look like? And so where do people go for their information, horrible places, right? They go to pornography, they go to their friends and their friends don't know anything, right? They go to their partners who know even less, right? Or you think, oh, this new partner is all of a sudden going to know all my buttons to know what gives me pleasure. And like, they didn't learn that in middle school. And so we certainly, I do a lot of educating doctors um, about how to do this well. But the problem is, is actually I don't use different slides for my doctors versus my patients because nobody knows anything. And so I sort of, everyone gets my same slide decks and they learn the same anatomy, the same physiology. Um, and it, I, I come at it from the same level because there's such a lack of knowledge. Hmm. Do you think we've moved on? Uh, I mean, not probably as as much as we sh- we need to and as we should have, but have we moved on a bit to say when you guys were growing up, when I was growing up as teenagers and the shame about our bodies and masturbation was not something you could talk about. It was all very secret. Do you see younger generations now, younger women being a bit more vocal about these things? I absolutely do, um, though I guess I run in particular circles. But just um, I think Dr. Rubin will agree with this too, just the amount that social media has made good sexual health education available and doctors like her and like others are, you know, on TikTok and Instagram making these topics not taboo, not shameful. And I think like the kind of graphics they use are really helpful, cartoons, and just making it part of the conversation instead of something unsayable. At least when I was growing up, it was really like, it was sex ed where the main takeaways I got were, you know, don't get an STD, don't get pregnant. And at some point you're going to start bleeding and you'll probably be wearing white pants in class for some reason. Um, so basically just be, be afraid, be ashamed. Um, and, and your parents, which are a roll of the dice. Um, so I think there's so much more available, but I don't know that everyone who needs it has access to it. Um, I also Mm -hmm. see a new generation of really inclusive and pleasure-oriented sex ed books coming out um, for all ages and genders, and that makes me quite excited. Um, But we could use more. Yeah, I mean, I just think if I tried to talk to my two 14-year-old daughters about their clitorises or clitori, I'm not sure what the plural is. I don't think they'd be very happy. Clitorids, technically. but (laughs) Clitorids! I like (laughs) clitori. The clitorids. If I tried to talk to them about their clitorids, I tell you, I don't think it'll last very long. But should we be talking to our children about this? 
So I think we absolutely should. And and I think in Europe they do, you know, their sex ed is a little better than in the United States in the sense that it's age appropriate, right, at the certain levels. Um, and that's really the goal is to really start with just body parts, you know, getting and not making sex a vice, not making it disgusting, not making body parts shameful to talk about, not making, you know, um, uh, masturbation, which I wish had a different word. I would like to rebrand to a new what word. What could it be people. like? Some people say self-love, don't they? But that's a bit weird as well. I'm not really it's, sure it's we have to We have to come up with a whole new word. <laughs> By the end of I, this podcast, we'll come up with one. That's the okay. goal. <laughs> you know, but so I think it's, it's, you know, ways to do it as a parent you know, from what I've heard is you don't want to have one 60 minute conversation. You want to have 61 minute conversations Uh and you can use, you know, you can start with young kids is we're at the zoo. Hey, how do elephants make baby elephants? Well, there's an elephant penis and it goes into an elephant vagina and they make a baby elephant. It's not sexual, it's sex, right? And so you can talk anatomy in the bath. You can talk about washing yourself. You can talk about things like that. And then you can start to use things like TV shows, right? TV shows are often very, uh, have a lot of innuendo or talk or, hey, do you understand that? Hey, what did you think about that? Um, a lot of people find driving is a really good time because you're not looking at each other. There's no awkward, you know, they're looking ahead, you're looking ahead and you can kind of, they're stuck, they're seatbelted in and you can have some of those more uncomfortable uh, conversations and make it quick, get in, get out, right? Don't make it a long thing. Don't make it weird. Um, make sex something that your grandparents have so that it's not like this exciting thing they want to try because it's so dangerous, that it's not sort of a, you know, ooh, doing drugs, this is bad. Ooh, this is like, um, uh, you know, something that I'm not supposed to be doing. Um, and then they won't want to do it, right? Or, they, or they'll or they want to do it when it's right and a, a good fit. And Dr. Ruby, could I ask you about the fact that, because there's, you know, it's really important in terms of, you know, taboo busting and, you know, women being more in touch with their bodies, but also there's very serious medical consequences for women too. If doctors aren't aware of the shape, size of the clitoris, they can actually damage it during procedures, which is not something I'd have thought about before. It's a part of the pelvis, just like anything else. And so there are nerves that make it work. There is muscles, it's arteries, it's nerves, it, it's it's a part of the pelvic floor. And so if doctors don't get taught about it, they can, of course, damage it in the things that they do. Um, if we don't understand how it works, we ignore patients. Um, and and if they say, oh, my orgasm has changed, we, we go back to Freud and saying, oh, it must be your psychology. It must be how you were raised. It must be your frigidity or your religion or your trauma when it might just be a clitoral adhesion or something that's like, I talked to a woman five minutes ago who said, oh my God, Dr. Rubin, that procedure you just did for my covered, uh, um, uh, closed up clitoris was a game changer. My orgasm is easier. I have better sensation. I'm so happy. My partner is thrilled. And my partner said, who you've never met is going to write you a testimonial about how amazing you are because you've made my partner's life so much better. Like, what nobody would have, nobody even examines the clitoris regularly to even find that anatomy change and to know that there's something you can do about it. I spoke with a lot of women who had something called lichen sclerosis, which Dr. Rubin sees a lot, I think, where um, it's a immune issue, an inflammatory issue that can result in the clitoris becoming covered over or stuck or painful. Um, and they had had it for many years, but nobody had examined that part of their body and they'd been to the gynecologist. Um, and so like, that's a totally treatable thing that is pretty common. It's, it turns out, which I had no idea. Um, so if a gynecologist just took, you know, one minute to take a look there or do that vulval exam, which is not rocket science, um, they could have seen something like that. 
And the two issues about damage that I saw were like one, um, surgery that really is supposed to have nothing to do with the clitoris. That's just a pelvic surgery or hip surgery that could potentially get too close to it or too close to the nerves. But the other thing that I learned was labiaplasties, which are still the fastest growing cosmetic surgery worldwide. Rachel, could I ask you to explain labiaplasty to people who might not have heard about it? Because I don't, I think it might be quite common in some parts of the world, but in other parts, we're still, you know, learning about it. So tell us about why someone would have labiaplasty. Absolutely. Um, So labiaplasty is, it's, it's usually described as kind of trimming the labia minora usually. So it's plastic surgery on the vulva. And the idea is often that it's cosmetic to make it look neater or uh, like less coming out or something. And there are some people who do it for medical reasons like discomfort or, you know, it hurts to be on a bike, but the vast majority is this cosmetic thing that's like they think their vulva should look a certain way and that it's unfeminine as it is, which is so sad. And again, like a result of us not knowing what normal variation is of the fact that this body part is hidden in these layers of shame and we don't have language and we don't look at it and we don't look at each other's. Um, So this is a really common procedure. And I spoke with a lot of women who had labiaplasties that they would describe as botched um, or just it was too much was taken off and it essentially became amputation of the labia. And this was so much more common than I thought. And it can absolutely uh, it can absolutely affect your orgasm or remove your ability to have orgasm, but also just the labia have so many sensitive nerves, as Dr. Rubin can talk about, that even something that's not botched, that's gone right, quote unquote, can have huge impacts on your sexual sensation. And often people do not realize that going in. Yeah. And you talked to a woman called Jessica Pinn, who who had labiaplasty at 18, and she lost all feeling in her clitoris afterwards. Isn't that right? Yeah, she lost a lot of sensation and no one at that age with that uh, access to information would be able to fully anticipate that kind of consequence. This really sort of makes me kind of depressed and sad. Maybe I'm a bit naive. The idea that we need fixing our vaginas are, are somehow, you know, another part of us that has to be fixed or surgically, you know, enhanced or changed. You know, are you seeing that a lot, Dr. Rubin, in your work? Is that is that something you hear from younger people that it has to fit a certain aesthetic? Well, I certainly don't practice aesthetic. I always, uh, I educate and I, I have, uh, I believe that it's important that we get things to drive the way that you want, right? I want things to function well. I care about pleasure and, and I believe everybody should have sexual pleasure no matter what size you are, what shape you are. Uh, everyone deserves it. But I do believe that biology is really important um, in the health of the sexual organs. And so there are hormones that go into this. There are muscles and nerves and, and a lot lot of uh, reflexes and your spine has to be healthy and your brain has to be healthy. And so oftentimes we think that sex should just work well. It should just is magic, but it's biopsychosocial, right? And so there's a lot of biology that goes into it. So the hormones are, sorry, the genitals are very hormone sensitive structures. And so the clitoris actually needs testosterone. The vulva, the vagina, the urethra, the bladder needs estrogen and testosterone to be fully healthy in a microbiome sense and to fight in 
infection to lubricate properly. And so in I don't like the term fixing. I think vaginal rejuvenation is a disgusting term that should never be used. But I believe that proper local hormones or proper um, uh, biology can actually be very preventative so you don't get urinary tract infection. So sex isn't painful, right? Intimacy should never be painful unless you want it to be. It's all about, you know, so understanding the biology allows you the tools to say, okay, what can be done about it? And so when it comes to something like labiaplasty, I believe that education is power. And when you fully educate someone, then they des- they should be able to make the des- best decision that they can for their body. So I think when we blanketly say you should not be allowed to do these things, you know, that's not good either because you're talking about a lot of gender affirming care that people are doing. They're getting breast implants. They're getting um, nose jobs. They're getting, there's all sorts of gender affirming care, calf implants, butt implants. And so the problem is, is sometimes our technology is out, outdoes our ability to know the consequences of those technologies, right? Early breast implants were very, you know, complex and complicated. Men are getting surgeries to enlarge their penis that are full of damaging, horrible consequences. Should we tell those men they cannot do those things with their body? I'll tell you, I'm a men's health specialist and we rarely tell men that they can't do things with their body. And so I think when it comes to something like labiaplasty, we need more research because we need to fully inform people about the risks and the benefits and then they get to make the choice. We will always in surgery have unintended consequences and there will be bad things that happen in surgery. And so the education, the knowledge and the research is and the awareness and the publicity is the really important part of this so that somebody at 18 can get access to good information. Yeah. And speaking of healthier vulvas and vaginas and and indeed clitorises, like we speak a lot about the menopause on this podcast and there's a lot of products, aren't there? Creams and gels and things that do uh, rejuvenate is a bad word, but make the vagina much more healthier as we age. And we do need to mind that part of our body, don't we, as we get older and as we go through our different hormonal changes. So it is probably the thing I talk about most on my Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages is this idea of as the, the the menopause happens and you lose both estrogen and testosterone of the tissue, it gets thin, it gets raw, it gets irritated, and it loses the acidity to fight infection. And women are dying of urinary tract infections. So yes, this is about sex, but it's actually not. By using vaginal hormones, which is safe for the 98-year-old great-grandmother in the nursing home, they prevent urinary tract infections by more than half. They're safe for almost all people. They're safe for people with history of blood clots or breast cancer. They are local hormones that just heal the local tissue so that you can wear pants, that you can sit, that you can wipe, and you don't wake up all night having to pee. Uh, And so it's so important that we understand that hormones are really, really important. The biology is really important. And that's not rejuvenation. That is just health, right? Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. 
Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Rachel Gross, talk to me about the G-spot. Tell me the story of the G-spot because we heard a lot about it in 1980s movies, I think, is when I first heard about it. That's right. That's when it got its name. Um, So the G-spot, like many parts of the female body, is named after a man, but it was named by a woman. (laughs) It was named after Ernst Grafenberg, um, a German gynecologist came to New York, and he noticed that many women were saying that they were urinating or having fluids come out during sex, and they were disturbed by it. Um, And he located this as coming from basically the spongy part around the urethra, and he called it like a a zone or an area. And later on, a sexologist named Beverly Whipple in the 80s, um, she was seeing the exact same thing in her patients. And uh, the story goes that um, her friends wanted her to name this spot the Whipple Tickle. Um, (laughs) But there was already um, a Charmin toilet paper commercial that involved a Mr. Whipple. So it became the G-spot. And then I think what happened next was that the culture kind of got away with it and it became this mythical, magical button that resulted in some sort of stronger, more extraordinary orgasm. And women's magazines all over were encouraging you to find your G-spot. And if you're not finding it, then you're not having like the full sexual experience you could be. And that's about when I was growing up and encountering it and was kind of resentful towards this messaging, which I felt to be sort of similar to the vaginal orgasm concept, which was saying, there's something you're missing out on and you're not going to be a full woman until you have this experience that some of you biologically can't have, most of you, in fact. Um, so it's it's always been both a myth and an uh, anatomical concept. Um, mm. And I ended up um, interviewing a woman named Dr. Helen O'Connell, who is also a clitoral icon. Um, she is an a clitoral Australian. icon. She I love is. this. And I hope that she's a bit Irish as well with a name like O'Connell. She lives in Australia. Yeah, she's Australian, <laughs> but she does have Irish heritage, I think. Okay. Um, so you can claim her. Great. Um, <laughs> and she actually mapped the clitoris using MRI imaging, ultrasound, um, and microdissection in the 90s. Um, and she too got this question of like, what is the G-spot? Is it real? And eventually did a study on that specifically. Um, And she found that it was basically the back of the clitoris, or it was the root. So um, as Dr. Rubin was saying, where the bulbs and the arms or the legs um, and the shaft meet, there's kind of this central part. And that seems to be where the G-spot is located. And it's also where the urethra is. There are also glands there. Um, So it's not like it's a special, unique organ. Um, I I feel like it all goes back to the clitoris. That's mm. how I take this. Because there's there's research, Dr. Rubin, isn't there, like that 18% of participants of one study could could orgasm during vaginal um, intercourse because there's not an awful lot of nerve endings in the vaginal canal, is there? 
Well, so here's where it gets interesting. The story, everything Rachel Gross says is true. And the thought process among the sexual medicine world, our specialists, is really that it's more of a G zone, right? It's the zone of tissue, all the things Rachel Gross just said. And actually, when you dissect the top of the vagina, which was that G spot, it stains for PSA, which is prostate-specific antigen. So it's actually the female prostate tissue. And just like we know there are men who like prostate stimulation, there are women who like anterior vaginal wall stimulation, but it's not everybody. I have a theory that it's very testosterone driven, just like we know the prostate is very rich in testosterone receptors. And so I believe there's probably some uh, hormonal effects. And so what I tell people is if you orgasm from clitoral stimulation, but not penetration, you're not broken. You're totally normal. If you, when I have patients and I ask all my patients how they orgasm, if it's internal and external, is it different? Is it the same? I've had patients tell me, you know, we know that orgasm can come in a lot of different ways. There are women who orgasm from nipple stimulation. They can orgasm in their sleep. They can corgasm from core exercises. Sorry, so these are sorry, Dr. Rupin. Corgasm. Okay, learning so much today. That's well, from doing your Pilates, is it? Exactly. There are people who really like Pilates, right, for that reason. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, so those are more rare orgasms, right? There are even men who can have, you know, extra penis, like outside of the penis orgasms. We have patients who can, you know, who have, you know, these these um, magic powers, as I like to call them. And so when I have a patient who can do that, I sort of let them understand you are a ninja unicorn, right? You have special powers. And the problem is, is you think that's normal, but you don't understand that like most people can't have that. And the problem is society has made us think that those people are the normal people and they're the ninja unicorns. And so what I tell patients who can only orgasm from clitoral stimulation, you are totally normal. You can have pleasure. That's amazing. You should have all the pleasure. Can you explore other things that might give you more pleasure? Heck yeah. This is where it's fun. It's not you're broken. It's here's a device. Here's a tool. Here's a way. Here's a new thing for you to see. Can you have more pleasure? Because more pleasure is fun. And so I think that's really the key there is, you know, I had a patient once tell me she could taste color when she orgasmed. And after childbirth, she lost the ability to do so. And she was quite distressed. I said, I understand. I would also be quite distressed if I could taste color when I orgasmed. And so these, this is not what most people experience, but we have to understand that it's physiology. It's a reflex. And so we're all wired a little bit differently. Mm. I mean, going back to the people, the unicorns who, who can have orgasms from vaginal um, sex, did you say it's to do with t- testosterone, that they might have more testosterone? Is that- I, I, I have a theory. So I think people who like anterior vaginal wall, like that G-spot stimulation, I think some of them may have more sensitive testosterone receptors or more nerve endings in that tissue. But I actually have a theory that I, I have to put to science and maybe someone listening can help me design a study to figure this out. But we know that there is a small percentage of men who have what's called premature ejaculation, where they orgasm in a minute or less, right? A minute or less, it's light touch, the wind blows, they can orgasm, and it's often very distressing, right? It's normal for a a man, it's about five and a half minutes is sort of the average, so a minute or less, we, and if you're bothered by it, we call it premature ejaculation, okay? Now, a penis and a clitoris are exactly the same thing. So I would bet money and science that it's the same percentage of women who have internal orgasms and they're premature ejaculators. The lightest touch, the lightest sensation, the internal penetration gets to the outside of the back of the clitoris and boom, they orgasm. 
Why not? It that makes perfect sense. A fascinating theory. I think we need to get somebody onto that as well as find a better word for masturbation. Just on masturbation, like even the word now that you're mentioning it, like what, where does it come from, the word masturbation? What does it actually mean? Is it from a Latin or is it from, do we know? Masturbation. Um, I know that it went by onanism a lot during like the masturbation panic, which has a very negative undertone. Um, but I, I mean, I think masturbation to me feels pretty neutral. It's just that it's become associated with like a sin or vice. Um, my issue is that we really don't have good words for, uh, the female version of a lot of these things. So masturbation is like the technical term, right? But mm-hmm. you have jacking off, um, jerking off. Um, if you're a guy, sorry, I'm not sure if you have to censor that. Um, we don't censor anything on this podcast. Incredible. We get away, we get away with a lot, actually. Go then on, I'll, jerking off, I'll jacking keep off. Keep going. And, um, and, you know, like, so... We I, sort of wanking... But I think wanking can be for women as well. I mean, now it can be, but that's the thing. Like, we don't have our own. So if I want to talk about, like, I'm going to go masturbate, I wish I had a less clinical term. And, like, I probably (laughs) will say jerking off. But I I think we deserve. So I have asked people this, what they use. And um, my friend Sophia Wallace talked about scratching the record. Um, I use Waltzing the Cat, which was a book title I saw. And someone at a clitoris event we did had this word that was like, um, we were like, what do you call a female orgasm uh, or clitoral orgasm? And she said a singing swan, which I loved. Oh, and masturbation was going into orbit. So I think it's really fun to play with your own personal language and find something you're comfortable with because you're probably going to use different words at the doctor's office or in the bedroom or with your friends. And like, we deserve to have more words to feel empowered to talk about this stuff and not have it feel extra clinical or forbidden in some way. While I have both of you here, two um, big sort of pop culture moments that are happening. I would like to ask you about them just because you're two very articulate women. Barbie, first of all, have you both seen it? Oh, yeah. Second time two days ago. And what's your take, both Rachels, Dr. Rubin and Rachel Gross? The full take? Um, yeah. We can, you can condense the take. I just think it's, it's interesting because okay, it's, okay. we're talking about it a lot these days. I mean, it does end on a gynecology joke. So yes. we support Barbie's vagina <laughs> is definitely um, talked about and mentioned. Actually, a moment I really liked was when she's getting catcalled by the construction oh, yeah. workers, right, in the real world. And they're like, oh, hey, baby. Oh, yeah. And she's like, I would like to inform you that I do not have a vagina. Ken does not have a penis. We do not have genitals. And their response is like, oh, that's okay. That's cool. And I felt like that was actually quite gender affirming, that it actually doesn't matter what genitals you're packing. It matters how you feel about them, how you feel about your body. And Barbie felt great with or without a vagina. Um, That is probably beyond the scope of our gynecological conversation, in which case most human beings have genitals. But it was a good moment in the movie. But did you did you like it as a feminist? Oh, um, okay. So I liked it as a movie. I liked it as a fun movie. Um, I think that it did address many issues of modern feminism. Um, many of the paradoxical traps that you fall into trying to be a fully empowered um, woman or person raised femme in this culture. However, um, a very smart comment someone said to me was, this movie kind of could have been made before second wave feminism came about or like at the end of the 70s because it doesn't address like gender identity in any meaningful way. It's quite binary. It's very much the Barbies versus the Kens, um, men versus women, except for Alan, who I would argue is non-binary representation because he's neither. Um, 
but it, it's very much like jabs at men and the patriarchy and either women being empowered or joking about how disempowered they are in the quote real world. And that's like, it's all valid and probably good for our young kids to be seeing, but it's just like so much has happened in the past 20 years that is not addressed. On the other hand, I didn't expect the Barbie movie to have to address all of third wave feminism. So yeah. I had a good time. I had a good time too. Uh, Dr. Rubin, did you appreciate the gynecological joke there at the end of Barbie? I will make a statement that I haven't seen it yet because I'm working so hard seeing patients all the time and I have two small children. And so the light that it is actually the first time I have wanted to see a movie in a very long time because I usually just fall asleep within minutes because we work too much. Um, but so I, I hope to see it very soon. The priorities are correct. Yes, you definitely go and see it. I know it is. As, as you said, Rachel, if nothing else, it's very entertaining. I have to say, I want to go and see it again. I'm, I'm definitely one because I, I think I missed some of the little comments because I was laughing at other comments. Oh you my know, God. So I need to go Brian back. Gosling is absolutely <laughs> incredible. The man is a, wow. I never had any interest in him until I saw him playing the most insecure, <laughs> pathetic creature I've ever seen. Brilliant. Listen, can we just finish going back to the clitoris and sure. back to that very important part of our bodies? Uh, what would you like people listening to know or to kind of further their education or to get more curious about that part of their body? What do you think is important? Dr. Rubin, first of all, why is it important that people get more curious about the clitoris? I think we need to really uh, let people listening understand that your quality of life genuinely matters, that if it's important to you, it should be important to your doctors. And if it's not important to your doctors, then you may want to seek out expert advice on doctors who really do focus on these kinds of issues, that you deserve empathy, you deserve knowledge, you deserve expertise, and you deserve a team that genuinely gives a crap about your sexual health and your quality of life. And so if you're not bothered by it and you don't care of one thing you listen to on this podcast, that's okay too, right? But knowledge is power. And the more you can learn about your own body and how it functions, the more you then realize what the tools are that you have in your toolbox to just have a more optimized, fun life. And that's really what my job is about. Brilliant. And uh, Rachel Gross? Yeah, I was thinking about something Dr. Rubin was saying about how um, that shame prevents us from being curious. Um, and you know, wanting to explore more about what your body can do. And I really find that to be the case that all these things like the language being tinged with shame or the feeling that your clitoris isn't part of your health or or isn't relevant to your sex life for some reason, if you're like really focused on penetrative sex only. Um, I wish we could get rid of that because it enables us to to explore and be curious about what our bodies can do and how we can feel pleasure instead of how we're supposed to be. Um, and with always that fear at the back of our heads that we might be broken or something's wrong with us. And um, to the point that like, you know, probably less than 18% of women and people with vulvas are having vaginal orgasms or whatever you want to call it. It's not that the rest of us are broken. It's even more like we're the majority and actually, we have a really easy and known way to orgasm and find pleasure. And that's actually a gift. So I I really hope that fewer and fewer people are feeling like their genitals are broken when they aren't having this experience that is unfortunately um, echoed constantly in the media, in movies, this um, idea of some like screaming instant vaginal orgasm. I really want to 
cut through that myth and hope that people come away being excited about their bodies. I think we, we've done that a bit. And another thing I found during my extensive research is that the clitoris is the only part of the human body that never ages. An eight-year-old clit looks and works the same as a 20-year-old one, but it keeps growing. It could be 2.5 as big, 2.5 times as big as in your 90s as it was in your teenage years. It's incredible. Uh, I'm going to myth bust that one, Oh, actually. great, myth bust it. That was in The Guardian. I- I don't know. The gar, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one. I don't think that's been well studied in any way. And I will tell you, as someone who has done cadaver studies and looked at cadavers, it's sometimes the atrophy of the, just like penises in old cadavers are not the same as a young, healthy penis because muscle changes, like muscle changes, size changes, menopause changes, the clitoris probably. So whereas uh, the probably the structure is still there. I'm not sure that the vascular nature or the health of the smooth muscle is actually still there. Certainly, we the function we we certainly again that's an it, it depends you know in terms of how the fun, I've certainly have lots of octogenarian patients who have are having wildly pleasurable orgasms. And really? So, oh, no, absolutely. seriously, not seriously. being funny. Do they oh, tell you no. about their orgasms? Of course, they come see a sexual medicine doctor. I hear about them all the time. So it's age is a number, right? So there are lots. I have lots of patients in their 80s who are having wild amounts of pleasurable sex. I'm so happy to hear that. Life goals, right? Life goals. Exactly. Well, look, I have to say I could talk to you for another hour about the clitoris and all that. And, and we haven't come up with another name for masturbation, but we'll continue the, our investigations. And I like the soaring the orbit. What was that? The, going yeah. into orbit. Yeah. Going, going into, into orbit is good. We'll just come up with our own ones. And I'm just going to ask listeners, if you've got a better word or if you've got a word that you use when you're pleasuring yourself, it's such an old-fashioned coy way to describe exactly. it. Exactly. Maybe listeners can, can give us some ones and I'll pass them on to both of you, Rachel. Yes. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, and it has it really been a pleasure. feels very empowering and liberating to discuss these things because growing up in Ireland, you know, our sex education was terrible. It's a bit better now, but we certainly never talked about the clitoris in school. It wasn't a word. It was a kind of, and it still feels like a bit of a dirty word, but I think we've done a lot to dispel that today. I hope that changes. In all your work as well, and well done on being clitorologists and clit experts and all around amazing women. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having. The pleasure was ours. That was Rachel E. Gross there and Dr. Rachel Rubin. And if you've got your own words for masturbation, please do let us know on the usual channels on social at IT Women's Podcast or by email the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And if you enjoyed this episode and if you generally enjoy the podcast, do go ahead and leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast. It makes a huge difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it from us. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 
1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.